Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today we'll be speaking with astrologer Alice Sparkly Cat, the author of the new book, Postcolonial Astrology, Reading the Planets Through Capital, Power, and Labor. They use astrology to rechart a history of the subconscious, redefine the body in the world, and reimagine history as collective memory. Their astrological work has appeared at MoMA, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the Brooklyn Museum. Viewing astrology as the ideal magical lens through which to understand and make clear the neoliberal and colonial systems of power that harm marginalized people, ACE brings a necessary and welcome perspective to the field of astrology. Let's get them on the line. Hi, Ace. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So just to start, could you explain post-colonial theory and how you're applying it to astrology? Well, I don't know if I could explain the whole theory because it's so many people working together. But I think what the project is, it imagines that like an end to colonialism is possible. So it tends to be a lot of writers and thinkers kind of from satellite colonies. I think it works in collaboration with decolonialism. And it's not quite the same thing. To put it like just really simply, I think it's about imagining that there's an end to colonialism. Being applied to astrology, it's a lot about like just looking at the distinctions between Western astrology and other types of astrology. And it's asking questions about like what makes it Western. Mm. So it's about asking like what makes the West the West. You know, astrology has been, I think, understood or misunderstood by some as a kind of prediction of the future, right? Mm-hmm. And that seems to be changing broadly in the field. Mm-hmm. So how do you view astrology or, or what's your sort of perspective on astrology now as a practitioner and the benefits of engaging with it? I think that a lot of times people go towards astrology when they're experiencing crisis. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. The thing about crisis is that a lot of times when you're experiencing it, when you're in the middle of it, you're not looking for predictions. You're looking for divination, which Mm. is a way of making your own future. That's how astrology is really changing. It's not about like, oh, what's going to happen to me? It's about like, what am I capable of? Like, what is possible? Do you find that when you're working with clients, their expectations, especially at the beginning, are different from how you understand astrology today or your perspective on it? I think that a lot of times when I'm working with clients, people are coming in wanting to be in collaboration. They want to have a conversation where we're trying to figure out like who they want to become, who they are together. I don't think I get a lot of clients where like, you know, just yeah, tell me who I am, like kind of thing, what's going to happen to me. I think it's because astrology as it exists, it's such a queer practice. So then what's implicit in it is that it's a language where we're caring for each other. Mm. It's about just kind of imagining together. Mm-hmm. This may sound a little obvious given your answer to the first question, but but how did you come to choose the name Postcolonial Astrology for your book? Well, actually, the naming, it's advised by my editor a little bit because 
I'm not great at naming things. Uh, when I like, <laughs> wanted to name this, I actually wanted to call it magicism. Like it was supposed to be about like magic as an institution. And they were like, no, 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 no one knows what that means. Let's call it this. It'll be a little bit more clear. And then I was like, oh, okay, that sounds great. And how would you summarize the book and, and your kind of approach to this particular subject? Because as you mentioned, there are many voices, many people thinking about this. The book, it's meant for people who use astrology. So it's meant for people who use astrology for themselves. If you do client work, it's meant for practitioners. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a historical overview of the subject or anything. It's not really academic. It's just about the archetypes. Uh, It's about the seven traditional planetary archetypes. And it's looking at them as symbols of the West. And then it's asking us what we want to talk about using Western astrology, like what it can be used for, how language can change as we're practicing it. Mm. In the book, you compare astrology to race. And could you speak to where you see these two coming together in culture? Why was it important for you to make that comparison? Before I did any research about it, what I was hearing from a lot of people was, hey, astrology, it gives me a way to talk about myself without the kind of like trappings of identity. Mm. And then something else I would hear about from people who are like, maybe like more distant from astrology is, hey, this is just a bunch of stereotypes, almost like race. Mm. I was reading this really great essay. It's called Who Needs Astrology? I think the name of the writer is Tabitha Richardson, but it's about the ways that we practice classification, you know, it changes when these things are not reinforced by power. But what I was finding out, and this is in a lot of the writings of Sylvia Winter and Lauren Goldner, is that race actually began in astrology. This way of classifying cultural and like kind of physical characteristics based on geography It was a magical practice. Race is religious in its foundation. So that was really shocking to me. And it made me go back to Tatami. You know, this is a really influential astrologer. And I was finding that there's this idea that astrology is based on observable differences. When I hear about that, I'm like, oh, like they must be tracking people, Mm. like these babies, like looking at what they go through based on their placements. But that's not what they're talking about. When Tatami writes about observable differences, what he calls particular astrological concerns, he's talking about variations in culture and physical phenotypes. So he's talking about race. So astrology, it's based on race. And then a lot of the meanings that we reproduce using it, like the racialized differences too. That was really surprising to me. That was something that I didn't know before doing the research. Can you help us understand that a little bit more just with some examples that you came across? This is in the first page, I think, of Tatami's second book in his four book set. And, you know, he's in the Northern Hemisphere and he's like, well, the sun, it's closer, you know, to the equator, closer to the south from him. And he's like, oh, people who live Southern to me, like they must be like hotter in disposition. He's talking about, well, the new moon, it's like towards the east. So people from the Orient, like they must be sinister. Uh, And he's attaching a lot of meanings just based on the sun and moon positions. Mm. 
In this context, I'm just curious, how have you been thinking about all this debate going on in the U.S. right now around critical race theory? I mean, I think it should be taught in schools, yeah, because it's an essential component about understanding ourselves in the world that we lived in. Mm. And also, I mean, your practice seems to be so much about challenging underlying assumptions, you know, the things that we just assume are real because we've been told them. So yeah, I'm not surprised you think it should be taught in schools. You know, cultural assumptions change over time and, and location also. And you get into a bit of gender in the book, specifically with your exploration of Mars and Venus. And I was hoping for uh, listeners who haven't read it yet, who hopefully will read it, can you, can you unpack a bit of your exploration of Mars and Venus through the lens of gender? When I started writing the book, like I had an idea of what I was going to do with the section on capital, which is about the sun and moon and Saturn uh, and those being read in opposition with Mars and Venus. The first draft of it, it was a lot more about sexuality because that was my own assumptions about what these planets meant. But then the more I looked into it, I realized a lot of gender, it's not about personal experience at all. So that's why we we have so much trouble talking our own experiences with gender Mm. it's made to reinforce ideas of who's a civilian and who is not in war that's what the language is for that's why like you know that section it like it changed so much because then i had to rewrite um, like a third of it help us understand the the idea of of gender and war a bit more because that's a that's a big idea yeah ideas around the binary of maybe the Western colonial genders, masculinity and femininity, they're about like who is worthy of protection or who needs protection. And also ideas around like who we have to protect people against. Mm-hmm. You know, each planet in astrology, there's a duality. Like they don't just mean one thing. They usually mean like a set of opposites. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes it a little bit harder to explore actually. So like both Mars and Venus, I would say, are about these binary genders. I think there's assumptions, right, that Mars is masculine. Um, That's not true all the time. There's been ways that Mars is also described as effeminate. Mm. And the reason for that is because Mars, he's usually seen as an immigrant god. He's usually seen as a foreigner. And then there's ways that in uh, typical narratives around war where cities are compared to like wives, sometimes mistresses, Armies are compared to like men, basically, and then uh, where Mars gets feminized. And then there's also specific moments where Venus becomes incredibly masculine. So like both are about this binary. Fascinating. And and you also go into Saturn a bit. I mean, mm-hmm. hopefully in this conversation, we can hit on a bit of the seven planets and, and, and how mm-hmm. you explore them. But specifically... You talk about some of the history of Saturn, how it's been used, how it's been weaponized. Can you explain a bit of that? And most broadly, um, I know you wrote the book for people that understand astrology and are practitioners, but for our listeners, I, I was hoping you could you could give a bit about how Saturn's been understood and then what you found in your explorations of it. I think a lot of the contemporary astrological understandings of Saturn is like very like kind of rigid, like almost like businessman like, like the taskmaker, things compared with like structures, things like that. And then in astrology, there's benefits and there's malefics. So the difference between that is malefics, like they're supposed to cause trouble. 
And what I found is like the malefics, they tend to talk about people who are not in power. The benefics tend to talk about people who have a lot of power. Mm. So Saturn is a malefic. Saturn is about like a Roman relationship to land. The way that Saturn celebrated, it's also through role reversals. In mythology, Saturn is known as both a son and a father. He's the son of Uranus, and he's also the father of Jupiter. And Saturn usurped Uranus, and then he was usurped by Jupiter. So there's a lot with Saturn that tends to be about reversing the role of something. Mm. When we're practicing Western astrology, which again, like it centers Rome as a geographical place and a climate, um, when we're practicing that on this land, uh, what tends to happen is Saturn, it, it kind of lives a different life here. It means something different. Mm. Yeah, people talk about Saturnian transit and things. These are mm -hmm. like challenging periods of one's life, right? How do you view what that is? Yeah, the word Saturnian, I think it's related to melancholy. That's one of the meanings of Saturn. It's related to ideas around poverty and also wealth because it's related to the land. So that's the duality of Saturn. Like again, each planet, there's a duality and there's a pair of opposites. It means a pair of opposites. Mm. The idea of melancholy, like it is very dual. Right, so so I think something that I'm hearing from you maybe is that, is that oftentimes we'll choose the one side of that or in history was chosen one side of it for, for an agenda where the duality cannot be seen in this sort of binary way. Mm -hmm. There are multiple meanings to, to each of the planets maybe a lot of meaning is actually enforced through duality mm. did you find that that's how you approach your your mm -hmm. your work with clients you you explore the dualities i think with my work with clients what we've really tried to do is like this chart it's not saying who you are that's not my job as an astrologer i mean that's not anyone's job to tell you who you are what we're doing with this chart when we're using Western astrology is we're like looking at your relationship to the West. So for example, with the sun, like we can talk about your concept of father uh, with Jupiter. We can talk about your relationship to ideologies or institutions. We can talk about gender and how that impacts you. We can talk about like a lot of wounds when we use Western astrology. So it's not great for everything, but it's like, it's really powerful when we talk about our wounds. When did you begin getting into astrology and how did you find yourself here? I got into it like around 2015, 2014, maybe if it's Hilton. I started practicing like pretty fast too. Like, you know, not in a formalized way, but I was just like, I was in a period of crisis. It like somehow like really helped me give me a language that I was just sharing with people over the internet in her community. Uh, it's not a language I'm taught through an institution. So I just, I wanted to share that with people. I wanted to talk about that with people. So it's actually fairly recent that you have, mm -hmm. have been looking into this. Since you've started in 2015, have you noticed significant changes because it seems I, I keep asking about these shifts in, in astrology because mm -hmm. it feels like the field is in a, a, a moment of great transformation and that you're really contributing to those changes so I was curious you know just in the last six seven years are there things that you've seen change I talked to 
someone else about this where like in 2015 that was a real low point for astrology like there were no astrology books being published so the bookshelves were empty like Mm. they were cleared out there's a lot of books from like the 70s maybe 80s but they were like there just wasn't any material Mm. when you google things about astrology like it was mostly yahoo answers and also like maybe a couple of like GeoCities websites, things like that. Now there's so much more material. There's a lot of new books. There's a lot more books by people of color. You know, before the last couple of years, I think that there were only 11 books about astrology by people of color out. And that's changed. Like I think the numbers possibly on its way to doubling at least. Yeah, a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. In the book, you call astrology or refer to it as, quote, time magic. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on what you mean by that. Yeah, it really feels like that because when you're looking at someone's chart, you're looking at it as a thing that's constantly in motion all the time. So you're talking about like how change is impacting them right now. You're trying to figure out what changes are happening, which is not always easy to do. You're trying to figure out what kind of change is possible. Like when you're overlapping two trusts together, essentially what you're doing is you're overlapping two temporalities. Yeah, astrology, it's just about time. It's just looking at time. Mm. And you explain how evolutionary astrology is a wrong way of thinking about it. Could you talk about why? I'm, I'm not against evolutionary astrologers, but like the concept of evolution like I have a certain type of reaction to that word, you know, most of the leading thinkers in evolutionary biology are eugenicists. So I'm really excited to maybe see evolutionary astrologers who are practicing today confront ideas around social Darwinism and progress. Mm. Astrology can be this incredible tool to bring people together, and and that connects also to this sort of notion of feeling seen. I was wondering if you could speak to what you've experienced and learned when it comes to the connective power of astrology. Yeah, I think it's really powerful because it creates relationships. It creates relationships where you're not necessarily in the same institution. Mm. Uh, Sometimes you don't even have to be in the same geographical place. It's a way to start a conversation, to invite curiosity about yourself, about another person. It's a way to share about uh, intimate details, uh, sometimes with humor, like there's a big astrology meme culture. Yeah, it creates a lot of beautiful relationships. Mm. Yeah. Going forward from your vantage, how do you think we can work toward making astrology more responsible as a cultural practice? And how do you hope to kind of fit into that with your work? I feel like that's a really big question, maybe like kind of a long-term question. Yeah, I mean, I'm part of a couple of groups, like, you know, there's peer support for astrologers, there's ethical committees, who are all kind of like wondering about the same kinds of questions too. I feel like that's not maybe a question for me. Maybe mm-hmm. that's a question for a larger group of people. Mm. So a lot of this program for the last year and a bit has been about the pandemic, how we're going to be coming out of it, how we spent it, and trying mm-hmm. to look at you know the earth from a whole earth perspective during this this time. And we spoke a bit before we were recording, but I was wondering how much you drew on astrology in the height of the pandemic during the lockdown, you know, 
when when we were all in a, in a serious moment of crisis, and also, if you don't mind sharing, how much the the practice of consulting with clients happened during the pandemic, and what changed for you as a practitioner? A lot has changed for me. The practice itself has changed. Before, I didn't do any grief work. That was a boundary I stated very explicitly to clients who are looking for that kind of work, and. In the middle of it, I started inviting myself to do just a little bit at a time. That's been kind of my main point of study, I think, with other practitioners, with, you know, some reading, you know, looking at how therapists handle that kind of work too. So I started holding space for people to process a little bit of grief during this time. That's mostly what I've been concentrating on. And I mean, you know, with things going virtual, like I've had the opportunity to talk to people who are not just in my geographical location too. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I like doing that. Uh, The virtual thing, it changes things a little bit, but it's, it's doable. I, I kind of like it too. So then like, I don't have to have space in my room. I have a lack of space, (laughs) Um, but like mostly it's about really yeah, and just inviting myself to hold space for grief a little bit more. And that's grief about like many types of things. It can be about like dreams about the future, relationships, sometimes people too. Yeah. I imagine uncertainty was a huge topic, just the what's next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure that the specific charts and the readings related to that, but broadly, did you also just find yourself as a bit of a therapist in that time, helping people become comfortable with the discomfort, basically. Yeah, exactly. I think that's what astrology can be used for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and one thing Spencer and I were both wondering was, you know, when, when you do this work, it's so uh, emotionally taxing, I imagine. How do you personally process the consultations energetically? How do you protect your your own sort of balance mm-hmm. by spending i imagine multiple consultations a day or i mean h- how does mm-hmm. the day-to-day work in that way well i do two a day so it's not that laborious long term five days a week you know you get spent so i i mean i have a limit to how many i can do like i think this spring was pushing myself like past my limit a little bit too much I mean, part of the peer support group, what is good at is reminding us that there's many people doing this work. So yeah, you can have boundaries around it too. I have my own process. I mean, I keep client notes. It helps me remember people when they come back, but it also just kind of helps me decompress too. Mm. Yeah. I don't really like, you know, leave it in my mind if it follows me, like, you know, into the night, I read fan fiction and it takes me to another one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Smart. Just normal, like emotional coping. Right. Our final question, as we emerge from the pandemic and especially in this part of the world, and as things mm-hmm. sort of develop into a kind of new normal, what is your greatest hope as we emerge from this? It's hard to say also because a lot of people that I'm talking to are in the pandemic. It hasn't ended. But then there there are folks who are like, 
I, I feel like, you know, it's safer to go out. That brings its own set of challenges. I mean, everyone's relationships change over the last year. And so there's a lot of anxiety around that sometimes, not all the time. I mean, it's hard to like kind of re-emerge when you're just not sure of the future, but it's, it's not over too. And a lot of people I talk to is not experiencing the pandemic as something that's over. Yeah. I guess my hope would be that we look at who we were during the pandemic and we just give ourselves a little bit of space to process that a little bit. Yeah. I'm more speaking for myself in terms of that. Mm -hmm. I'm still processing like what that was too. Yeah, I mean I think I think we all we all are and 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 it's very hard to understand what just happened and 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 what's happening in this moment and where we're going mm -hmm. and and it wasn't just one pandemic was it it was it was multiple things experienced at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so there was covid but there was Trump there was you know so, right. social and cultural change there was a lot that happened. So yeah, I I it's interesting that your your perspective is that we that we could take the time to really think through it and process it and not rush to creating new assumptions that, that we develop from. Yeah, I think it's really important to take time because the most important thing is our relationships and that takes so much time. Uh, I feel like personally, like a lot of what I'm doing at this point is just reckoning with relationships, having the conversations I, I need to have with people. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was really, really wonderful to hear from you. No, thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At a Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.